You're listening to the DIY Home Builder Podcast, episode six. Welcome to the DIY Home Builder Podcast, where we discuss all aspects of building your own home. Whether you're acting as your own contractor and hiring subs or doing the labor yourself, building your own house can be exciting, stressful, and ultimately rewarding. Listen in with your host, Egan Lohman, as he interviews other owner builders and industry professionals and learn from them as they share their stories and experiences. Follow us as we go from start to finish on managing a new build, from securing a construction loan to scheduling and sourcing materials, and ultimately building on your future. And now your host, Egan Lohman. All right. Welcome back, DIY family, to another episode of the DIY Home Builder Podcast. I'm your host, Egan Lohman, and I have a great show for you guys today. My guest is Doug Sommerfeld. He is a four-year Air Force veteran. He's worked as a mechanical contracting trade for almost a half a century. He's an, um, an entrepreneur. He's owned five different businesses, uh, and he's currently actually a, a fictional author. But most importantly, he's an owner builder. So I've got Doug on today to talk about his build uh, back in my home state of Colorado. And let's jump right in. Doug, welcome. Good morning, Egan. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate your time. Well, I appreciate you asking me and hello to your audience too, if uh, they're listening. Yeah. And uh, I should tell my audience, Doug is actually... I think the first owner builder I met outside of my folks, his youngest or his one of his daughters um, is married to a good college friend of mine. And um, that's how we all met when we were in, back in college. And I've actually been to Doug's house and it's a beautiful place. And are you guys in Arvada, Colorado? Is that is that the, the county? We're, actually, the, we're actually on the borders on my property line. I'm in unincorporated Jefferson County. Okay, that's actually where the county my folks were in too. That's it's so I, like I said, I was I was there. I don't remember exactly the year, maybe ninety eight, um, but uh, yeah, just a beautiful place. So why don't we start there, Doug? Why don't you tell us a little bit about um, the where, what, and why of your build? Why did you build? Where did you build? And and what did you build? Well, the last comment about where we live, uh, it is a bit easier being in unincorporated Jefferson County permit-wise and dealing with uh, building officials than it is within a city limits. So uh, that's that's kind of something if you have the options, you know, you prefer that usually. Of course, uh, different building officials are different everywhere in the world, so you just really never know. And tax. What about taxes on that too? Did you, you have faced different property tax being unincorporated? Absolutely. And one of the big advantages here, and one of the reasons why I've resisted being annexed, is because uh, my taxes are half the cost being in the county as compared to being in a city. So, you know, it's not a big deal most of the time. But you buy an automobile, that can amount to quite a number of dollars because uh, the automobile is taxed according to where you live. Sure. Great point. Uh, but anyhow, as far as this building goes, um, most people really need a special reason to tackle something like home building. I mean, you don't just wake up one morning and say, I want to build a house. I mean, some, <laughs> yeah. 
Some people might, but, you know, if you're not a home builder, <laughs> it's not something you necessarily want to do. There's usually something that's pre-built that will satisfy most people. And, you know, if you're thinking about building, you really need to ask yourself, why would I want to go through the trouble if there's something out there that will fit what we're looking for? Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. You know, in our case, uh, we weren't actually planning on building. Uh, we spent about three years looking around for all kinds of different properties, used properties, new ones, uh, trying to find a place that we wanted to move to. And uh, I think most people do that. But uh, there's a there's a lot across 80th down here, about a half a mile from me, that I said, if that lot ever comes up for sale, I'm going to build a house there because of the view. And in the process of looking for new homes, uh, I happened to drive past this lot, which was screened by a bunch of trashy trees up on the road. You really couldn't tell what was here uh, until one day I decided to crawl through those trees and come down here and look. And that's when I found this five acres with just as good a view as the other place. And the for sale sign was so weathered, it had been up there for so long that you could barely read the writing uh, who was trying to sell the place. <laughs> so that kind of, you know, you see something like that and you think, hmm, they've had this place gone on sale for a while. Maybe we can do a little negotiating here. Uh, the four acres that I wanted over on 80th, they were asking $250,000 for that lot. Uh, this lot here, we ended up negotiating for uh, five acres for $105,000. Oh, that's great. In that area, just so my listeners know, you know, like land prices are different all across the country. But for that particular area in, in you know, it's very close to Denver, Colorado, but it's still in the country. Uh, it's And it's beautiful. Five acres right there is, I don't know what that'd be worth today, but that was a steal of a deal. Well, it's five acres. You know, I'm not in the city limits, but it's the same thing as the city limits. So, but it also has a fantastic view. I can see off to the south, uh, I can see Castle Rock, which is about, oh, I don't know, 30 or 40 miles south of us. I can see Pikes Peak, which is about 100 miles south. I can see Mount Evans, which is kind of southwest, maybe 50, 60 miles. And I can see Long's Peak uh, to the north, which is up behind Boulder. So we have a fantastic panorama view from all the decks on this house. So, you know, that, that was a – you walk out on this hillside and you stand and you look around and you say, okay, I'm building a house. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. So – Let's jump into that. So what did you build? We purchased the land, I don't remember exactly, in 94 or 95. And we ended up moving in, I believe, in September of 97. Okay. Uh, excluding a partial teardown and rebuild that we were forced to do, it took about 18 minutes, to, 18 months, I'm sorry, to actually build the house that we're living in right now. Uh, to the move-in point. Now, that wasn't finished. That was that was just to the point where we had carpets and raw paint and, and a livable house at that point. Okay. What did you end up, like, what was the square footage then? And, and kind of give me a, a general, give my audience a general sense of the style um, and the layout of the house. The uh, actual square footage of this house is 7,348. Ooh, nice. It's a big boy. Yeah, we have a thousand, a little over a thousand feet uh, of porches and decks that are under roof. 
we have another deck that's not under a roof that we're fixing to put a roof over because your decks run away too quick if you don't have a roof over them. That's right, and I remember that. That was it's just amazing because they're they're not just on the second story, but you've got walkout patios and decks on the first floor as well, and they're basically wraparound, right? Yep. I mean, you have decks on all almost all four sides of that house. On uh, we have a continuous deck that runs across. <clears throat> excuse me, the front of the living room, dining room, and kitchen. One continuous deck across that whole area. Yeah. Uh, this the basic house is is fifty feet long, and about uh, what is it thirty forty forty six feet wide I guess if you include the roof that goes out over the open porch that's on the east side. Right. Uh, when I designed this house, I uh, had to think about how I wanted to do it. I'm severely handicapped with asthma, exercise induced induced asthma and because of that I had to quit carrying the toolbox and that's why I started my last company is because I physically had less physical work by being the manager and running the company than I did carrying a toolbox sure uh, and so consequently at that time I was having a tremendous amount of problems in the hospital a lot and I had to think about my future and one of my thoughts was, well, um, if I become handicapped to the point where I'm in a wheelchair, where am I going to live? And so into the plans of this house, I made sure that I had the basic structural wheelchair house built. You know, it doesn't have all the amenities for, for a handicapped person, but it has the ability to be completely converted to a person like that. Yeah. So consequently, my... I wanted five bedrooms, and uh, uh, each bedroom is large enough that we can put at least a queen-size bed in that bedroom, put furniture around the walls, still have enough clearance for someone to run a wheelchair around inside that bedroom. So that kind of determined the size of the bedrooms, and it was one of the reasons why this house is so big. Uh, all the hallways are extra wide. Uh, I think my hall, the narrowest hallway is like, I think three feet, and there's just one real, real short section. The main hallway is like uh, five feet wide. Mm -hmm. uh, the bathrooms are all extra large with like the toilet and the showers on one side and the sink and cabinets on the other side. And these bathrooms, you can go into the doorway and spin a wheelchair around inside these bathrooms. So they're, they're all 10 by 10. So we have plenty of room, you know, for wheelchair access. Um, but I wanted, I wanted my bedrooms on the upper floor, of course, uh, out of the way uh, from, from the living area. And the stairwells uh, are all five feet wide. That's enough room to put a wheelchair lift on a stairwell and still have room for a person to walk up the stairs beside the wheelchair when it's going up. This is, this is something that I think a lot of people don't think about, right? Maybe they don't have the, um, the experience, and, I, and I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. I didn't know that. Uh, that you had that asthma, but you know maybe they don't have that necessarily in their experience, so they don't think about it. But the thing is, what you've done, like by opening that that house up to make it handicapped accessible, does two things. A, it dramatically increases your resale value because you now have a much bigger market in which you can potentially sell to. Not saying that you are ever going to sell 
you know, most, a lot of owner builders stay, retire in their homes and, and live there forever, but you should always consider resale. And then B, you know, I just remember it was very striking. Like the house is very open because you made those hallways and those rooms oversized to make them uh, wheelchair and handicapped accessible. And so it was a really aesthetically appealing look, right? It, 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 it feels much less confined. You had that grand staircase going up. And I remember how wide that was. Five feet, you know, doesn't seem like that wide. But when you see it compared to what you, most people are used to, which I think is a, typically a four, three to four foot stairwell, stairwell uh, it, it's, it really adds a lot of value to the house. And it doesn't cost really that much more to build because it's just um, it's just the design right if you do it the first if you do it that way the first time you don't have to um, go back in and replumb or re uh, reblock you know something like in the bathrooms I'm sure you put blocking behind uh, all your walls so that you can attach um, uh, handicap bars absolutely absolutely yeah. and just little things like that I mean you've got spare lumber sitting around Throwing blocking behind that wall takes no effort and takes no extra cost, right? It just has to, you just have to think of it ahead of time. That's right, exactly. You know the uh, the uh, I mean the the five foot wide stairwells, for example, it's a little bit more costly material wise, but not necessarily labor wise because they've got you know the the builder has to put the step in whether it's three feet wide or five feet wide doesn't take any longer. Exactly. So your labor costs typically don't cost you more. Now, if you buy a house and spec it from a builder, of course it's going to cost you more. <laughs> right. They're going to see that and they're going to say, oh, here's a great port. I can use this to uh, add another 10% to my to my overhead. Right. Yeah. Right. But anyhow, my house, this house here, the upper floor has basically uh, three bedrooms in the main house and two large bathrooms, and then over the garage area, which is a 1,200-square-foot area, has two more bedrooms, a rec room, and another bath over there. Oh, wow. There's a half bath down on the main level, and the main level, uh, it's a, it, the house only has three rooms plus the, the laundry room and the pantry, but it's got the kitchen dining room. And when I, when I designed my house or when I had thoughts of building a house years ago, uh, I said, you know, everybody spends most of their time, if they're not watching TV, in the kitchen. Absolutely. You know, that's where everybody congregates. And I said, if I ever build a house, that will be the biggest room in the house. And this kitchen-dining room combination is, what is it? This is 32 feet one way and 24 feet the other way. And we have a large counter dividing the kitchen and the dining area with seating at that counter. So... You can have 10 or 15 people in this room. You can be cooking. You can be serving for parties. And there's still room for everybody to move around. So, you know, it's a gigantic area. I mean, you can go out and build a small 1,200-square-foot home if that's all you want. You know, one person can do it. It's 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 tough. But uh, uh, usually a large home is too big for one person or even two or three people to build that's why, in my case, I contracted most of the trades because they can bring a crew in, slap something up quick, and then get out. You know, and it takes a lot less time when you do it that way. Uh, knowing how to hire people and, and supervise contractors—that—that's a big plus if you have that kind of experience. If you don't have that kind of experience, 
it's it's kind of like walking into a dark room looking for the light switch. You know, you really don't know what you're gonna what you're gonna run into. Yeah. And so let's talk about that because I mean that is the point of this website and this podcast is to help educate and train not not necessarily train but definitely give people the starting grounds for figuring that out because I mean you know my folks did not come from the construction background they they'd done a lot of home renovation themselves and just learned as they went but I think that hiring and managing subcontractors is a critical component you know they did actually all the work themselves so they didn't necessarily have to deal with too much management of the, the of the subs and so right. let's let's talk about that what did that look like for you and what what advice do you have a for finding and hiring really quality subs and then b how how would you go about managing them well in my case i've been a mechanical contractor for many years and had to deal uh, with these kinds of problems. Uh, I've created many bids myself. Uh, I've had to contract many different trades. And, and when you contract a, a trade, you know, you usually, sometimes you'll have a contract, sometimes it's just word of mouth. But basically, you should have it written down on a piece of paper, everything you expect them to do. And they should be familiar with what they're expected to do. Because a lot of times, the contractor will come out and he'll build something that he thinks should be done and that isn't exactly what you want and you have to there's a lot of thought process that goes into this mm-hmm. uh, and and there there can be some hard hard discussions that go on if this isn't all laid out ahead of time and it is very very difficult to think of everything ahead of time so um you know if, talking to other people and finding out that have used these contractors is a big plus. Find out what their problems were, because many times you can you can find out um, where they ran in into roadblocks and and fights with the contractors that you can put in your contract at, at the beginning, so that there is no question about it. Yeah, that's a great point. So let's let's talk through that. Like, what's an example of of something that you might put into the contract? So, and first off, how do we how do we find other people that um, have used this particular sub in the past? Just word of mouth, talking to material and supply contractors. How to you know maybe get it ask ask the sub themselves for a list of references. Have them point us to previous customers, something like that. I, for the most part, haven't used references provided by the subs themselves. Yeah, I usually try to find out you know where they've worked, the jobs they've worked on. Uh, what kind of uh, well usually there's someone you can get in contact with a lot of times when you're in the building uh, like Home Depot or Lowe's or someplace like that and you go in and and you're buying your stuff you ask them if they know contracts sometimes these people know contractors and recommend them mm-hmm. uh, being in the construction industry I run into them periodically on and off so I kind of have a little bit of an idea um, is like for example when you're building a, a residential home the standard today is to go in and slap up the studs do no back out slap up the drywall if the walls are a little uneven don't worry about it slap up the tape and plaster on it get you a big old texture gun and just put as much orange peel on that wall and that ceiling as you can to hide all the defects totally uh, that's 
that's standard in the industry. I wanted smooth walls in my home. There's not a textured wall in my home. Every wall is smooth. The biggest reason for that is, is everybody hammers nails in the wall, hangs a picture. Okay? Then you don't like it. You take it down. You hammer a new nail in the wall. You hang another picture. You sell the home. You rip down all the pictures. New people come in. Here's all these patched holes that do not match the texturing of the wall. Mm-hmm. Looks horrible. Looks horrible. Uh, I do not recommend texturing on the walls at all just for this reason. Because if if you do a lot of nail holes in your wall and you decide, well, I want to change this whole wall, you just go in, you plug up the holes, you sand it back smooth again, and you can never you you don't see where these nail holes and these damages are. Sure. Uh, little things like I've had a problem with uh, uh, the Romex connectors that connect the Romex cable to the electric box because we use steel electric boxes. Uh, we've had a couple of those Romex connectors that weren't manufactured properly and they had sharp points on them. When the electrician tightened those connectors, they punched in and shorted out the cable. So in order to fix this this problem, I had to cut out a little piece of the the drywall around that outlet box so I could get my wrenches in there to take that connector out, pull the cable out, put a new connector on, put it back in, and then patch the hole in the wall. If you had had a textured wall at that point, you would have had a spot there that was visible around that outlet. Mm -hmm. Having a smooth wall like I have, I just put the piece of plaster back in, a little tape and plaster, sanded it smooth, and it was invisible. You couldn't tell that I cut out around that box. Sure. So, I mean, like, you know, here you've got a couple a couple design specs having the six six inch walls using the plywood gluing right which which is not typical you know these all deviate from as you're mentioning kind of the conventional approach these days and so you had to you had to go in there and make sure that you're because you you subbed that job out you subbed your framing out correct so you had to direct them and make sure that they you know built to your spec and you know, make sure everything's square and plumb and whatnot. And so, just getting back real quick to wrap up the whole managing um, subcontractors. How did you how did you deal with that? I mean, did you kind of walk them through first and get them on, aligned to your vision that you wanted? You know, this is your owner built home, and you were looking for quality over over um, speed and and uh, and cost. Or how did, how did you get them online so that you ended up with straight walls that you could sand down and have no uh, texture on them without, you know, or without having that stuff, you know, punching through, right? Because that's the point. But being an owner builder, you get, you have, you're in the, you're in the power seat. You have the control to design and spec out your house the way you want it. But now you've got to manage the contractors to make sure that they build it that way. Oh, yeah. Uh, One of the things that I did, too, is after I researched the residential drywall contractors, for example, uh, and discovered that none of them had the skills or the capabilities uh, of doing a smooth wall. And they'll flat tell you, you know, we build homes so fast now, we can't take the time to do that. Uh, I went to commercial contractors. Uh, I... Uh, in my business, I'm constantly in new construction buildings where the commercial trade works, and I see their, I see the quality of work they do, and you can just walk up to those people, and even if you don't work in these buildings, if you see a building under construction, you can probably walk onto the site and, and talk to the 
to the uh, the manager of the site and ask him if you could, you know, look at some of the contractors' work and talk to the contractors. Many times these commercial contractors will come out and, and do residential work for on the site for you, and they're not any more expensive typically than the residential people are. I've never heard of that. That is fantastic advice. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, there's there's a lot of different people doing this than the guy working out of the trunk of his car and. I don't believe that I hired anyone on this project that was, you know, a one-man operation working out of the trunk of his car. I believe everybody that worked on this project was in the business doing their specific trade for many years. They had a lot of experience and a lot of ability. And, you know, as far as the contractors go, you don't go in and supervise a contractor and, and try to tell them how to do their business. Uh, that's the worst thing you could possibly do. You're supposed to hire people who know what they're doing, and you let them do their thing. It's just that if there's a particular design feature that they need to do and know about, then you can go in and see that they do that. But you don't go in and tell them, you know, well, you need to check this stud. It's crooked or something like that unless the whole house is falling over. <laughs> and if you have that kind of contractor, you better kick him out the door and get you a new one in there real quick anyhow. You know, uh, this is – there's a book. Um, I actually just interviewed the author of it um, for Mark Smith of the Owner Builder book. And he's got like kind of his, his Ten Commandments of, of what makes up – um, an owner builder, like a, a successful owner builder. And his number one requirement is you better be able to go on site and be willing to fire somebody every day. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And Absolutely. then number two is you need to have a spec drawn up for every single room in your house. And that, that spec gets down to the nitty gritty details of, you know, exactly how that room is going to be built. And if your subs have that information, they can put up that room and walk away and you you basically can uh, shake hands and part ways and and know that your house was built exactly the way you want it. And like just like Doug said, without having to, you know, micromanage, which is the worst thing you can do, the sub's going to walk off your job site if you're trying to micromanage him. He knows his business. It was your job up front as the owner builder to go and do your due diligence and find the right sub for your job by getting multiple bids and by, you know, asking around and, and, and researching. So awesome, Doug, really great advice right there. So let's jump back. You, you mentioned, um, so your house, you had, I know in your, in the, in the, um, sheets you sent me, you said you had some faulty concrete that unfortunately resulted in a, a partial teardown. Let's jump into that. What what happened there? Well, like a lot of people this, that are not in the building trades themselves, I had a regular job. Uh, I had to go to my regular job every day. So I would stop by. Sometimes I'd leave late, see what was going, so I could see what was going on with the contractors. So you'd usually start early. Sometimes I'd stop in at lunchtime, and I'd usually try to get off early and get home to see what's going on. But I couldn't be on the job site all the time, and that did cause some little bit of problems with the trades. Uh, one of the problems it caused is this is this is not a small house. This this house sits on a hundred caissons because we're building on bentonite, which is expansive soil. Mm -hmm. uh, 
a 7,000 square foot house, the foundation for this thing is pretty massive. And the one of the contractors that I used was a fairly large contractor, but he did mostly small homes, and his crews were a certain size for small homes. Um, from what I found out from the neighbors after the fact is the crew, when they they, they did all the uh, foundation uh, setup, they put up all their forms and everything to get ready for the pour, but when it came for the day the day of the pour, they weren't there weren't enough people on the job site. And um, they had another problem with one of the walls kind of collapsed and it's full of concrete and they're trying to push it back in shape because it moved a little bit. And they just didn't have enough men on the or crew on site to keep up with the poor and take care of all the little problems. So consequently, my neighbors told me there were concrete trucks on a hot day backed up from my house a half a mile down to the stop sign. And they also told me after the fact that these concrete people not only had used all the water on their truck to keep the concrete from setting up, they were going to the neighbors and getting buckets of water to go pour in that concrete in the side of those trucks before they ever put it in the pour. These trucks should have been taken back to the plant and emptied, and they weren't. They went ahead and poured them in that foundation. The end result was the foundation, after we started building on it, uh, the foundation started cracking, and so we had to do some core samples to see what the strength was. Uh, I had spec 3,500-pound concrete in this foundation, and some of the walls were down to about 1,400 pounds because of, because of them pouring faulty concrete into the walls. So the end result of that is, is we ended up tearing it down and we get, we got in a lawsuit, which we ended up winning, but then we had to rebuild the house. So that was a really bad thing that happened. Um, <clears throat> one thing that you can do to kind of alleviate this, I guess, is we delayed in having the, when you pour concrete, there's, you're supposed to have an engineer come out and take samples and they test these samples. Uh, but they can take a long time to come back with the results. And the samples they take uh, aren't necessarily always out of a truck that has bad concrete on it. So it's it's a tough thing. You can easily get some bad concrete in a portion of your wall and not even know it. Uh, but but that was, uh, I mean, it was uh, something we had to deal with. And, of course, we had a house to build. We dealt with it, uh, tore down all the concrete, redid all the caissons redid the concrete foundation and uh, I was on site for the whole foundation for this house that we have that we're living in now it's 20 years old and I think I saw last year when I was searching all the foundation real carefully I think I saw one tiny hairline crack in one little tiny spot other than that this foundation after 20 years is just as solid as the day it was poured so you know that I mean, you run into problems like that. That was a big problem. You you hope you never have to deal with something like that. Yeah. So let's dissect that a little bit because I've got. I mean, that's just fascinating. First off, I, I understand what a caisson is, but can you kind of describe that for my for my listeners? Bentonite is a, an expansive soil. If you put a foundation down, which is back east where I come from, that's typically what we do. You dig a trench, you put a foundation down, and you bring or you, you put a footer down, I'm sorry, and you bring your foundation up from that. If you do that on expansive soil, when the soil moves around, your house moves around. 
causes your foundations to break. It causes the plaster in your walls to break. Uh, it actually causes some of the walls to separate a little bit. So if you're building on expansive soil, there's proper engineering procedures to handle that. One of the ways to do it is you, you drill a hole uh, down in the ground. These All these 100 caissons are drilled 40 feet down into the ground to bedrock. Uh, I believe they're 12 inches in diameter. Um, and what they do is they drop rebar down these holes, and then they fill these holes full of concrete. Uh, and this is what's called a caisson. Then you build your foundation on top of these caissons. You build up from that point. Underneath each of my foundation walls is what's called, um, I think it's an expansion joint. Uh, actually, all it is is just a piece of cardboard about uh, a foot tall and as wide as the wall, which was eight inches. And uh, it goes underneath the foundation. And that way, if the dirt's moving up and down, it crushes this concrete or this this um, this uh, cardboard, and it doesn't try to lift your house. And yeah, and if the dirt happens to get up to start pushing on the underneath of a wall, you're sitting on a caisson that's 40 feet down into the ground. It's like a screw in the wall. You know, you're gonna go pull a picture off the wall if there's a screw going into a stud. That's kind of the same philosophy of building a house on caissons that's great so how do you span between the caissons i mean you've got all these essential you know you got your sauna tube 12 foot sauna tube running down and then how do you jump between those to begin your footer they uh typically if it's ground level they'll just set the cardboard they'll scoop out a little bit with the shovel they'll set that cardboard expansion joint right on the ground uh and then they'll pour the concrete on top of that expansion joint Oh, I see, uh, I see, if, I see. Okay. Yeah, if, it, if it's above ground, then they'll typically, they'll between the caissons, they'll put a tuba six or something and set the expansion joint on top of that and then pour, build the foundation above that. So And then they backfill around that later. I gotcha. Okay. And then, so then the other thing you said um, was to have a, uh, it, it's almost like a, a, a soil engineer come out and test well, oh, you first, absolutely have to have that happen. You have to get your soil samples and get that okayed by the county or city. You know, these are requirements. Right, right. And that's a great, I mean, you've got to, you need to do that too so that you know what you're building on. Cause it, like you said, if you had just gone with conventional, uh, footer and then foundation wall, you would have been really hosed. But, um, no, I, I'm, I guess I, I missed the term you used, but it was for the, it was for the, um, individual that came out and sampled the concrete out of the truck. To get a to get a sense of how much strength that that particular um, sample could hold in in Jefferson County, and I'm sure it's pretty much the same in most other cities and everything. I was able to do my own uh, drawings for the house, so I drew up the whole house myself. Uh, but I had to go out and hire a structural engineer to do another set of duplicate drawings for the foundation and get an engineer stamp on that. Okay, this person that you hire for this engineered drawing and stamp is typically the same person that will come out and do periodic inspections during the concrete pour. Okay, so they'll come out after the after the holes are drilled for the caissons. They'll inspect them before the pour. They'll inspect them after the pour, you know, to make sure that they were done properly. It has the right amount of rebar and everything in it. And then as the as the foundation is poured and built up in concrete, this engineer will come out and do periodic inspections, you know, to see that everything's being done right. 
So that part kind of is the responsibility of that engineer to see that your foundation is properly done. But at the same time, in my case, the engineer wasn't on site any more than me at the time they did the actual pour. Uh, so he couldn't see all the trucks lined up down the street, and he couldn't stop anything from happening that was happening in that case. So uh, that was just a if had we been on had I been on site at that time, I would have refused to allow them to continue, and I'm sure the engineer would have too. Yeah. But the engineer comes, you know, the engineer just, he doesn't live here. He just comes out and does an inspection and leaves. Sure. You know, he looks for certain things, and when he does his his concrete samples, then he takes those samples. They have to set up for a few days. I don't know how long. Usually he just pours them right on site, and then he takes them to, sometimes it's their own establishment, and they do they do uh, tests on the concrete, and this this test is a core. I think it's six inch diameter, and I don't know, it might be a foot, eighteen inches long. They put this thing in a press, and they they press it until it collapses, until it breaks, and they measure what kind of pounds per square inch it takes to do that. And that's a three thousand pound, thirty five hundred pound concrete says that you have to have three thirty five hundred pounds per square inch before that concrete breaks. Well, in the case in the case of this house. Uh, we started doing some backfill before the 21-day cure time, uh, some light. We weren't doing any compacting next to the foundation, but we are just kind of dumping some dirt in some deep areas so that the framing contractors, if they fell off you know, the wall, if they fell off the floor or something, they wouldn't have a long way to fall. And a couple walls that just had a little bit of light dirt touching them cracked, and they shouldn't have. And that what gave us, that's what gave us the clue. We would eventually found out when the soil engineer came back and said, "Hey, guess what? <laughs> right. um, not the soil engineer, but the but the foundation engineer." So then, did you guys take a core of your existing um, foundation for yes. the, for the yes. lawsuit? You actually drilled right into it. I actually had a coring contractor come out. He attaches his machine to the wall and he cores. You know, the weak walls we cored right where the cracks were. Uh-huh. Or right adjacent to the cracks to get a solid core and go test those. Yeah. And there was a couple places in the wall that it matched the 3,500 pounds, but some of them were down as low as 1,400 pounds. And that was totally unacceptable. Yeah. yeah. And I've got videos of the teardown, too, and it's, it's kind of funny in one respect because they had this massive uh, excavator with a big call on it to come out and break the walls down. And he grabbed a hold of one wall and tried to, you know, break it out. And it just crumbled to dust right under his bucket. He couldn't even pinch it with that bucket. It just crumbled to dust. Oh, wow. Uh, and if anybody's been around concrete much and tried to break up concrete that has rebar in it, you know yeah. how horribly tough that is. Yeah. You almost have to get a torch in and cut that rebar. In this case, the concrete just crumbled to dust right around the rebar. Perfectly straight, good rebar fell out, reusable, right <laughs> out of the guy's call. So that kind of tells you how chalky and bad the foundation was. So were you able to leave your caissons then? What's that? Well, the caissons were put in first and let and they allowed to cure before they came back to build up the. Yeah, uh, but the caissons were damaged. You you could not use the same caissons because you did not know if that big excavator in the process of tearing the walls down stressed one of the caissons. Oh man! So you wouldn't dare reuse the same caissons. So. What I had to do is take the house plans, and I had to move. You've got to have at least three feet, according to the engineer, distance between an old caisson and a new caisson. 
Because when they drill a hole for a caisson, they fracture the earth around it a little bit. Sure. Okay, and you don't want to get into that fractured earth with new caissons. So we had the foundation plan, so we kind of moved it around on the site until we found the spot that all the new caissons missed the old caissons. So there's actually 200 caissons under this house. Okay, you left the first one, sure, that makes sense. But that kind of messed us up a little bit because the house is now like seven feet south further out on the hill and five feet west further out on the hill, which put me a little further out on the edge of the hill than I wanted to be. Yeah. Uh, consequently, the road that goes down around the walkout basement's kind of tight. Oh, but, yeah, I gotcha. You know, it, it, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't a showstopper, but I mean, it, did present some minor problems. Yeah. Wow. Well, you got through it. It sounds like it's We got through it. Yeah. Good learning experience and definitely something um, of value for my listeners. So I appreciate you bringing that to us. Um, let's see. So we're actually, we're coming up on 50 minutes, Doug, which is awesome. These things always fly by. And um, I want to make sure we get, we, we get um, the full story here. So in, in your opinion what what went really well and obviously we've covered the foundation was probably the, the biggest and maybe the only um, hiccup so what went really well and what what's some what's some advice you have for other owner builders on just things to do to ensure that their project is also successful well, to be honest with you, other than some weather delays and the faulty concrete, I think the whole project, you know, went fairly well. Uh, hiring commercial contractors, we had uh, uh, some different commercial contractors that we brought in here. We had a couple residential contractors, but uh, for the most part, uh, I have a lot of skills that you're probably your average person does not have. Uh, I've been in the construction industry for a long time. I've actually... I'm actually, I can wire a house, I can plumb a house, I've done concrete framing, drywall plaster, I've painted my whole house, I've done roofing, I do the mechanical, the landscaping, so pretty much I have a lot of different skills that many people probably don't have. Uh, so to me, building a house, you know, I wasn't going into the unknown, I kind of had an idea what was going on, and I was confident that I could build a house without any problem. And so I think... I think this experience behind me uh, made my project go a lot smoother maybe than than a project with someone who doesn't have these skills. Um, I was I did cleanup work. Uh, I, I came back and inspected walls when the back out people came in and they missed a couple of crooked studs. I could tell them, you know, you need to go in here and take care of these studs so the plasterboard's going to be straight. Yeah, so I had yeah. this kind of skills. Uh, the uh, um, it, it, it's, it's just, you know, if you're in the dark when you're building a house, you have to totally depend on the people that's doing it for you. You know, if you can walk up to a contractor with confidence and knowledge and a little and, and they're aware of the fact that you're rather skillful yourself in what they're doing, then they're willing to be a little bit more. Uh, listen to what you have to say than they would someone that doesn't have a clue what's going on. So, you know, I had a lot of advantages there. So, you know, if you're that kind of person, great. I think your I think your situation is going to go a lot better. Uh, 
One of the things uh, uh, I can say is you need to expect problems because they're going to happen, and you have to be willing to deal with them, have the time to deal with them. And and um, I would I get multiple quotes, you know, from different contractors. I also researched the contractors, looked at some of the work they've done, um, and to see that you know there's there's some bad contractors out there. So you know, don't be afraid to look around for. And even when you look around and research, you never really know till you get them. Um, if you're going to spell out your contracts, which is a hard thing to do on paper because you always miss something, you know. And I, for the most part, most of my contracts were word of mouth. I want you to do a professional job, you know, like you normally do. And I'll, you know, if there's something comes up, we'll have we'll talk about it. So um, that's kind of the way I handled my contractors. Uh, you can, I would get quotes for materials sources from different places also, different lumber yards. There's a lot of different places that sell lumber that aren't open to the public necessarily that you can have access to. You know, wholesalers, for example, if you're building a whole house, typically you can go to a wholesaler and buy direct. Okay, let's talk about that. What? Did, give me an example of a wholesaler for lumber. Well, your regular lumber yards are the, Ones you see alongside the street, Home Depot, Lowe's, I think. Uh, I don't know what they are back east, but uh, uh, you go in, you buy your boards and things in there. They're pretty high-priced. If you take the price of uh, the lumber you find in these, it's going to cost you double to build a house. Okay. Uh, but there are, in in my case, there's a lumber company called BMC that had a wholesale department. And the wholesale department was a massive lumber yard that pretty much was open only to, to you know, licensed contractors. Mm-hmm. But you'll find out uh, <laughs> that if you're buying the material for a complete house, uh, they'll talk to you. So, okay. so just give them a call. Yeah, give them a call and talk to them. You'll find out that they'll be willing, you know, for, I mean, they're going to be bringing out tractor trailer loads of material, for heaven's sakes. Sure. They're not going to lose a sale like that. Yeah, yeah. Because they aren't the only one in town. And they know for a fact that if they turn you down, you're going to find somebody who will. How You know, I was talking to an old friend back uh, in Bozeman, which is where my wife and I plan to build. And uh, right now there is a massive construction boom. Um just to give you an example, like there's only like two percent occupancy on rentals. That's how that's how limited the supply of real estate is in that town. And that's bad. That's bad for a home builder. Right. Exactly. Uh, you know, she was telling me that concrete, just concrete alone, is a year out in in supply. And, and the price is double. Right. So more. So uh, if you have the choice. You do not want to start building and contracting during a period of time like this. Uh, if you can wait, if like I have this two, this two and a half acres up here in the foothills, now I'm not going to build right now because we've got a housing boom here in in, uh, in Colorado because I guess of the decision they made to, to make things legal around here. We've had a big influx of people, and we have a shortage of housing here also at the moment. Uh, that's going to turn around here pretty soon, and when it does, everything's going to crash, and you're going to have a lot of hungry subs out there. That's interesting. So, yeah, do you have any sense? I mean, you've been in the industry for a long time. Do you have any sense of that kind of waxing and waning, you know, the ups and downs? Like, does that go in a cycle? Is it five years, ten years, or is that just really variable depending on 
the geopolitical whatever situation may be in your in your area? Well, the area has something to do with it, but you know, overall, I've heard this thing that says we have a minor recession every seven years, and we have a major one every fifteen years, and I think we've just come out of the major one here about five years ago. <laughs> so we're probably coming up on the minor one in a couple of well, years. Well, we might be. I don't know. But yeah. uh, I've looked over the past, and believe it or not, that actually, you know, maybe I'm just making things fit that, but I can actually look back over time and see where the dips and the rises happen according to this time schedule. No, it uh, makes sense. Denver, in Denver, passing the legalization of marijuana has made a big difference in this state. We've had an influx of people, which creates a false economy. We have we have a construction boom going on right now that they can't keep up with, and it's going to taper off uh, eventually. Uh, we're going to load this state up with so many people that don't have jobs because we're not in Colorado. We're not in a big industrial complex out here. Uh, This is not like uh, New York or back east where manufacturing and and all kinds of industrial stuff goes on. You know, we get this place out here is uh, kind of being built on a bubble. (laughs) So I'm kind of waiting on my place up here for a little bit until it kind of backs off some. And then you get hungry contractors out there. You're going to get better deals. Yeah, you bet. And the lumber companies will be willing to negotiate. The wholesalers will be willing to negotiate. Right now, if they can't keep up with supply and demand, there's no negotiation. Period. Yeah. You know. So if you're going to build during this period of time, be prepared to spend twice what you would during a bad time. So it's kind of something to keep in mind. No, that's great. Uh, one of the things is is I highly recommend that every contractor that you pay a dollar to, you get a lien waiver. Uh, yeah. That is highly, highly critical factor. You get a lien waiver. And even then you aren't protected because some contractors can go bankrupt without paying their laborers. The laborers come back and can, and can put personal uh, lien waivers against your property for labor that they weren't paid for. Oh, even really? Oh, yeah. Even though it's the contractor's responsibility to pay them, if they don't, then they can come back and get you. Now, you a lot know, of times, this day and age, contractors will do the, what is it, the 1099? Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. They'll, they'll treat their laborers as independent contractors, which you're unaware of. Right. And these independent contractors have the ability, if they're not compensated for their work, to come back. Uh, anybody who puts materials and labor into your property can come back and put a lien against your property. Do you know if there's a statute of limitations on that? I mean, it doesn't seem reasonable that if that company goes bankrupt or out of business in five years, I mean, there's got to be, right, they, they, they must have gotten paid within a certain amount, 90 days or something from whenever the, the labor was done, right? I I don't uh, know if there is a statute of limitations on that, but... What I'm looking for right now, uh, real quick here, let me see if I can spot it. Uh, I thought I had one here. There is a form, and I've got it. Uh, see, water bills. I don't think I see it on my internet here. Thought I could tell you what the name of it is. There's a there's a form that you can get from the state. You post it on your job site. And it basically says that 
it warns anyone working on that site that they are not allowed to lien the property for any reason. Oh, interesting. Yes, so there in Colorado, there's a form. Now I don't know if it if that follows through on on all uh, yeah, states and, and counties. Right. You know, I, I don't know if that's the case or not, but uh, I do know Colorado has such a thing, and we had that posted on our job site in more than one location. So uh, it kind of tells people that they got to be real careful about getting paid yeah. from yeah. the people who is supposed to pay them. Yeah. So, um, you know, we're I, you're saying that we're kind of running on time here. Let me tell you a couple things here. That uh, this is a two-story house with a walkout basement. It's a big house, like I said. Um, the uh, and it has the handicap. You know, I've got 52 doors in this house, and every door in this house is 36 inches, with the exception of the one that goes to the attic. It's only 30 inches, and I've got stairs to the attic, and I have a full walk through attic seven feet wide and seven feet tall that eventually was supposed to be built into a cedar closet for clothing storage oh cool so you know that's something i had designed into the trusses you know you call up a trust company and say build me the roof trusses well in my case i said i want a seven foot by seven foot walkthrough down the middle of my seat my roof and so they were able to design that into the trusses so if you ask them ahead of time, something, you know, you can do. I mean, that's something you can have done. Yeah. Uh, how much I personally did, most of the stuff was subcontract, but I did all of the interior trim. I did the appliance installation. I did all of the heating and cooling, uh, the uh, exterior retaining walls. I did the painting. I did a tremendous amount of cleanup. You need to be ready to do a lot of cleanup that your contractors, they'll dump stuff around and not take care of it like they're supposed to. So, uh, you know, you, you need to be able to do that. Uh, cost, uh, we paid $105,000 for the five acres. At the time of move-in, not counting the cost of the, of the faulty foundation, we had $260,000 invested in the build. And that included carpet, interior painting. And the basic, all the basic appliances and everything. I mean, it was complete house pretty much except for the trim and the finished paint. Uh, it also included an unfinished 3,000 square foot barn. And the reason for that is, is during the teardown period and rebuilding, uh, before we got to the rebuild, we had a bunch of material laying out in the field that was being destroyed by the weather. Mm-hmm. So I told my house builder, I said, go down there and build me a barn with that material and I'll buy all new material for the new house build. So I got a barn. <laughs> cool. <laughs> we estimate another hundred and fifty thousand uh, to finish the work with the driveways and things like that. Uh, we were looking for a thirty-five hundred square foot house on a small lot for around four to five hundred thousand. We we'll end up with a seventy-three hundred square foot house on five acres with a fantastic view, with an estimated five hundred and fifty thousand dollars cost when complete. We haven't had any recent appraisals, but. Within the city, within the city, five acres with a large house should be. People are. I, I know some real estate people, and they're saying at least a minimum one million four hundred thousand for this property. For sure, yeah. So you know, there's a substantial. You know, if we turn around and sell it and get that kind of money for it, we'll make a substantial profit on the sale of the house. Yeah, I mean, you're fifty plus percent, well, almost, almost right, I mean, right, thirty three. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, that's that's huge. Now, of course, that's a that expands, you know, 
you built in 97, it's now 2016, so 20 years, but still, I mean, you more than made up for your, um, for your initial investment. Well, but there's another, there's another danger in doing what we did. I built the house large because of the handicap requirements, but building this size of house and pushing it up into that, that price range puts you in a danger zone because most people that are going to spend that kind of money for a house probably are going to want to be in gated communities. Uh, they're going to want to be in an area with similar homes around them. I've got some nice homes on the east of me. I've got some 1950s homes to the west of me. I've got a horse property to the north of me uh, that has like 30 horses on it. So we're kind of out in the country, but at the same time, your people that have a lot of money to spend on big homes don't know how many of them, what kind of market we have for a large home and a high-priced home like that in this area. So that's something to keep in mind. Be willing to accept the fact you may not get as much money for it when it's complete as you would if it was in a gated community in the city. A couple other tips for you. Um, you know, if you can purchase your material yourself and, and negotiate uh, deliveries and things like that, it's going to be a little less expensive for you than if you have the contractor provide it. Uh, contractors provide it, they're going to do markup, and it's going to cost you a lot more money. Uh, if you pay contractors for the work they do, and some contractors you know, are big enough that they can complete the project and then get paid for it. Other contractors, they're kind of running on a shoestring, and they'll come and ask you for money. Uh, you know, well, we've been working out here and kind of like to get some money. Uh, I typically only advance funds for materials on site or labor already completed. You bet. That's that's huge. Yeah. Yeah. So if you have a contract for $100,000 for a framer, for example, and he wants money, progress money, I don't have a problem giving him some progress money, but I always like to make sure that if I have to fire this guy tomorrow and, and bring in a new framer to finish up his work, then I've got the money to pay the new framer, and I haven't already paid the old framer I just fired. Yeah. And I have terminated, I terminated an electrician and I terminated the concrete guy. Uh, of course, he was already done with the faulty foundation. I never paid him for it. I ended up in the lawsuit, which we won. Uh, but, uh, you know, you don't want to go there. You absolutely don't want to get involved in a lawsuit if you can help it. <laughs> Unless you're a lawyer and then you're probably fun doing it. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's, you know, they'll come and ask you for money and tell you how much they want. You need to, you need to look at how much they've actually done how much materials are on site and stuff before you make a decision how much you're going to pay them. If they say we need $2,000, you know, you're going to, I would say, well, you haven't done $2,000 worth of work yet. I'll be willing to give you 1200 or something like that. Sure. So, you know, that's a negotiating thing. They come to you and demand money. You've got the money. They don't have it. Uh, their demands don't hold quite as much weight than if you've already paid them and say, I need you to finish your work, and they don't show up until, for two months. That's right. That's right. Whoever's holding the money is holding the power. Pay them. If they demand prepayment, I would walk away from them. That's great. Okay, that's a contractor you don't want if he wants prepayment because if he doesn't show up on the job site, um, what what are you going to do? You just keep calling and calling. They don't answer. What are you going to do? The only thing you can do at that point is get into a legal mess, which your objective isn't to fight a legal battle. It's to build a home. Yeah. 
you know, so keep that in mind. I never prepay for anything. Uh, would you like me to run through real quick some some design features in this house uh, for about five minutes and, and go over some of the things that are in this house that won't be in an ordinary house? Yeah, that sounds great. Let's let's do that, and then we'll wrap up. I want to give you an opportunity to tell my listeners where they can find you because I know that you've got um, – you're kind of retired now, but you've got your, your – um, you're an author. So, yeah, let's run through the features, and then um, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. But, Doug, first off, I want to, uh, you know, Thank you, because this has just been invaluable. I mean, a ton of great, great information packed in here. Okay. Well, like I said, this this is a fairly large home, and it's sitting on 100 caissons. Uh, and under the basement and garage, we dug that out to the level of five feet in both places and refilled the, the garage floor and the basement floor with non-expansive soil like road base. The purpose of that is you don't want your garage floor and your basement floor uh, to heave on you. And the only problem I had was in the garage floor. Uh, and it's probably my fault because, because of the first concrete failure. Uh, I would not allow them to compact the garage floor with the compacting machines because we did not have backfill on the outside of that garage wall yet. And so the consequence, we had a little bit of loose dirt in there that settled and my garage floor settled. Which wasn't a big deal because I hired a mud jacker to come out, and the mud jacker drilled some holes in the concrete floor, got his mud jack, and he pumped the concrete slab right back up in position, and it's been fine ever since then. So, you know, that was a little problem there. But I've got two by six studs on the exterior and interior walls on 16-inch centers, and I have six-inch insulation in it, which is more than your average home, which typically has two by four studs. What's your R value on that, then? Oh, it was, I don't remember what it was, but it. I mean, you can look at any like any of your building suppliers at your insulation, and they'll tell you what the R value is on six inch insulation. Should be above thirty, maybe even above fifty. Yeah, it's it's quite a bit. Uh, I got a half inch plywood sheeting glued and nailed to the exterior walls. Subfloors are all three quarter inch plywood, tongue and groove, glued and nails. No particle board in the structure. I did that because of my asthma. I can't afford to have any off-gassing from the chemicals in particle board. Sure. Would you Stop recommend, that. I mean, definitely glue. Everyone, like, yeah, that is huge. Glue, glue. your glue plywood. Glue is huge. Squeaky floors are the worst. Uh, the glue, and it makes a big difference on squeaky floors, believe me. I know some people go so far as to actually screw down their plywood. Would you? Yeah, would you, even recommend that, but it's going to cost you more money. Sure, yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, Five-eighths roof sheeting, which typically it's half inch or less. It's glued and nailed. Roof trusses are also on 16-inch centers. Uh, you know, I have a roof I could probably park a tractor trailer on with no problem. Uh, I've got 50-year, 100-mile-an-hour laminated shingles on this thing because of the high winds. Uh, the uh, I have an attic door up in my roof that opens, or I can open an attic door and walk out on another roof for the upper part of my house, because my house's roofs are like 35 feet in the air. And putting a tall ladder up there is kind of scary, so I can actually walk out on my roof. Yeah, and from the attic. Uh, I've also got sound insulation, not only in all of the walls between the rooms, I also have it in the first floor ceiling to sound insulate between the, the main floor and the upper floor. And that is a huge thing. Uh, you go into a new home today, it's so funny. 
we'll go and look at a new home, some of these new homes they're building, and, and we'll be in one end of the house in, in the living room and hear someone in the bathroom on the other end of the house talking just as clear as if they were right beside us because they do not put sound insulation in modern homes today. Yeah. To me, that's that's just horrible. Uh, I, the special power features I did is all my outlet boxes and light switches. The typical installation is if you have two outlets on a wall, the guy runs a wire to one outlet, and then he drills through the studs to get to the other outlet, through your wall. I did not permit that in my house. Every outlet box, every switch box on the main floor is pulled down to the ceiling of the basement and run to junction boxes. Every outlet box and switch box on the upper floor is pulled up into the attic, accessible, and run to junction boxes. Because of today's power requirements of computers and everything in homes, I can actually take an outlet in one of my rooms, go up to the junction box, and run a dedicated power, 20-amp power supply, to that one outlet. And that way we could put a whole computer system on that one outlet rather than having it on an outlet that has the, you know, lights and other outlets and things like that. Yeah. So, you know, that's a that's a feature. and But that's going to cost you more money, too, if you do something like that. Sure. But not as much as you would think if you plan ahead and do it. Yeah. Uh, I've got number 12 wire for all my power wiring. I did not allow them to put in 14. 14 is easier for the technicians to put in because it's easier to run and bend and stuff like that. I required 12 because it's a higher amperage wiring. That's just gauge, uh, right? 12 gauge. Yeah. 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 All my power junction boxes for my outlets and light switches are all grounded metal boxes. And the reason I did that is if you have a loose connection in there and it starts burning, you're less likely to melt a metal box than you are a plastic box. And if it's grounded and something starts burning and it, the burnt wire touches the metal box, it's going to short out and blow your circuit breaker and not burn your house down. Cool. So that's that's one of the reasons why we did that. I did double studs at the sides of all windows and all doors. In other words, when you're nailing your trim up at the side of your door, you've got a double stud there to hit a nail with rather than a single stud. Okay. Uh, I've got glue lamb headers over all openings, windows, doors, and some future openings. Uh I've got two boilers for hot water for redundancy. If one of my boilers fails, I don't lose my heat in the middle of the winter. I've still got a second boiler. That's awesome. I've got 12 heat cool zones in here with dampers and hot water coils. Uh, I've got 12 thermostats. So like my living room, for example, if I'm in the living room and I don't want to heat the whole house, I just turn the heat up in the living room. A damper opens, and i got a little hot water coil in that ductwork, and I just heat the one room. Okay, okay. This is built more like a commercial building than it is a residential home. Definitely. I have a central fan system, uh, and my fan, people go down and look at their little furnace. My fan is like seven feet long, four feet wide, and six feet tall. And it's got a three-horsepower VFD-controlled motor, So, and it's run off of static pressure. So if I only have one room calling for heat, this variable frequency drive will take that three-horsepower motor and it'll turn the rpms down till it's only using the energy of say a third horse motor so it's an energy saving feature there and i have a chiller with a 120 gallon storage tank and two condensing units so if one of my condensing units fails i still have a second condensing units to make cold water and i can cool while, while it's not the, the two five horse condensing units are not really big enough to do this whole house if it was fully loaded it's you know one condensing unit is big enough to do two or three rooms, so if I was to lose one until I get it replaced or repaired, I'd still have cooling. 
So 120 gallon hot water heaters are not hard to find. You know, if you're running out of hot water when four, three or four of you take showers, I'd recommend a bigger hot water tank. Um, whole house attic fan. I've got a heated garage. Uh, my bathrooms in the upper floors are all recessed two inches. I love that heated garage. How did you, is that forced air or what? No, that's hot water heat too. Okay. That's you know, awesome. it's got a little fan coil with hot water heat in it. I mean, maybe, you know, not everyone's obviously in Colorado, but you know, I grew up in Colorado and even, even parking in a garage, you get out and it's freezing in the middle of yep. winter. So having that well, not only garage. that, if you work in your garage, right. you exactly. her out there and you clean the wife's, the wife's vacuum cleaner jams up and you got to take the hair out of the roller and put a new belt on it. You're going to probably go out in the garage to do that. You don't want to be freezing. It'd be nice if it's heated. You bet. You know, I've got floor drains in all my upper floor bathrooms. Those floors are all recessed two inches below the regular floor. So that if I have a toilet that overflows or bathtub or anything that, you know, any leaks that I have, it should run across the floor over to the floor drain and down the floor drain that and not is, go down to the lower floor and destroy your ceiling. That is awesome. That yeah. is awesome. So what, uh, how, how did you, in, or not insulate, but how did you essentially um, make that water tight? I get that it's recessed and then it kind of tapers down so all the water is going to drain. So you're not going to have water sitting for long. But the, then, the floors are all towel and they have the concrete uh, underlayment. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, they, they put down an underlayment first, and then they put down a skim of concrete on top of that, and then they set the floor tiles on top of that. Sure. Uh, it's water, supposed to be waterproof. I think there's a fiber, or there's a, there was like a uh, uh, fiber mat. I don't know if it was rubber or plastic that went down before anything. Okay. But they shot some screws through that, you know, to hold down the flooring. So they made holes in that mat. So... You know, if you had standing water in that bathroom floor for a period of time, I'm sure it would leak. Yeah. But the idea is, is if you've got a toilet overflowing, it's going to happen for a short period of time, hopefully, and then stop, and the water will run down the drain, and then the problem's gone. Right. So that's the purpose of the drains. Now, those do create problems because if you do not keep water in those traps, they will cause your bathroom to smell if you end up with positive pressure in your sewer system. Oh, sure. Okay. They do make a thing called a spit valve. That you can attach to your the, the the faucet that comes out of the wall that provides water to your toilet. Uh, you have a little like three eighths uh, chrome pipe that goes up to your toilet. You can cut into that and put a spit valve on it, and put that over to your drain. And what that does is every time your toilet flushes, the water pressure drops a little bit, and it causes that spit valve to it just basically spits a little water out. So every time you flush your toilet, that spit valve shoots a little water down your floor drain to keep water in your floor drain. Huh. So those are those are available. Uh, I didn't. I don't have that. I just have a bucket under the sink. I just fill it and pour it down the drain every once in a while. Sure. <laughs> why? Why? Why do you need to have water down that drain? I mean, it drains, so it's not like the water stays in the in the. All pipe. drains have a trap. Oh, okay. Okay. I gotcha. And then like, yeah, that just creates an insulation. Now, you have a trap under your sinks. All your sinks have traps, all your toilets, all your tubs. Everything has a trap in it. And what that trap is is it's a U-shaped thing, and it holds water. So when you take a shower, the water runs down the drain, but a little bit of it stays in this U-shaped trap. And because you have that water seal, you do not get the air that's in the sewer system out of that drain yep. in your tub to stink up your bathroom. Yep, yep, yep. Gotcha. So when, you know, your toilets are always being flushed, 
you know, your sinks and your showers are all being used. So those traps are always full of water. The floor drain never has any water going down, hopefully. So that means you have to either put a spit valve on it or personally dump water down that drain periodically to keep the trap full of water. Gotcha. So you don't get sewer gases in your house. Gotcha. Uh, I do not believe in the plastic water piping they're putting in houses. You're going to have leaks with it. Everything's copper water piping in here. Oh, okay. Um, I got PVC sewer piping, and I've got uh, I installed an RV sewer dump outside my house. Okay, if you're ever going to have a trailer with a toilet, oh, nice, yeah, yeah, great. Anything like that, it's not that big a deal to cut into your sewer piping, whether you have a leach field, a septic tank and leach field, or you're connected to the city, and put a little sewer dump outside beside your driveway so you can back your trailer up and dump your trailer when you get home. That's awesome. So if you're doing anything with your sewer system, think about putting in an RV sewer dump. Yeah. Okay? That's great. Uh, great. You know, I mentioned the wheelchair access. Uh, All my outside entry doors are steel on the ground level. Uh-huh. Uh, somebody's not going to come up and kick in. Of course, they can break a window and come in, but they're not going to kick in my doors. Uh, the uh, all the house was, I designed the house so all the main rooms, the bedrooms, living room, dining room, kitchen room, all face the west view, and all those rooms have decks. Uh, the only problem with the decks is we never use them because <laughs> they face west. When we get home from work in the afternoon, the sun is shooting in on those decks, and it gets hotter and heck. <laughs> and so, and we also put heavy steel concrete or heavy steel uh, deck furniture and barbecue pits out on these decks, and a hundred mile an hour wind comes along, they end up down over the hill somewhere, all broken in pieces. Nice. So we walk out on the decks occasionally, but we don't spend a lot of time on the west facing decks. Yeah. We spend a lot of time on the east facing covered uh, porch, concrete porch, you know, barbecuing and stuff like that. So. Sure. Sure. Uh, let's see here. Walkout basement. Um, I have two possible. I've got five bedrooms, actual three and a half baths. I have two more bedrooms in the basement that we're using for storage rooms and offices. And I have a complete bathroom frame um, uh, plumbed in in the basement that I've not finished out yet. Because basically for two people, three bedroom, three bathrooms and five bedrooms is more we got to clean anyhow. Right. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> one, of the, one of the last greatest features about this place is, is when I designed it, I said that I want all my service rooms together. So you drive in my garage, and all, all the floors are level, so we, you have wheelchair access. You don't have any bumps or things to climb over. Uh, you drive in the garage. My wife can drive in the garage. She can load her groceries on a little push cart, push it through the garage door into the mudroom, where if you're coming in muddy or something, there's a sink there. You can wash, hang up your coats, take off your boots and shoes. To the left of that is the big pantry. She can unload her little cart from the grocery store into the pantry. Push it one step farther, and then she can unload all of her laundry stuff. Push it one step farther, and she can unload all her kitchen stuff. She's got everything centralized there. She doesn't have to run to the basement to do laundry. She's, it's right there beside the kitchen. So those are great features. And I also have a laundry chute from the upper floor to the laundry room. That is a fantastic feature. You do not have to carry dirty clothes down to the laundry room. You walk down the hallway, open a little door on the side of the hallway, toss your dirty clothes, and they go right down into the laundry room. Yeah, I love those. Yeah, it's also a large laundry basket because the doors are vented on both the first floor and second floor in case you you know, toss some wet stuff down there. 
Yeah. But I mean, you know, the, these are some features that I wanted in my house, and that's a, that's one of the reasons for building because I got a lot of special features. Another reason for building is I got a lot that didn't have a house on it. So, and another reason for building is I have the experience and the contracting ability that I wasn't afraid of what I was going to run into. Doug, that's awesome. I I can't tell you how much I appreciate. Um... I mean, just a wealth of great information there. So thank you. Tell tell my audience where they can find you now. Well, uh, I was a contractor for many years, and I decided I didn't want to die sitting in that desk uh, at that desk in my contracting office. I wanted to do something else with life, and I'd always thought about writing. So I sold my business in 2010 to my partner, and I have published two books since then. They're they're 800. If you if they were in paperback, they would be 800 page paperback books. They're long novels, um, and you can find me, you can Google me on Amazon and Doug Summerfield, and I'll pop up. You can also go to my website, which is called fantasyworkshop.net, and that will also direct you to places where you can buy my books. Uh, I'm writing a little bit later in life, so I haven't gone the traditional route. The traditional route of paperback books is, is tapering off. Uh, I won't say it's it's going away, but I mean it's not what it was. The internet and the ebooks are coming up, and uh, so my books are all ebooks. You have to you don't there's no paperbacks available yet. Uh, we've thought about doing that. Uh, I'm a kind of person like many people says I'll never give up my paperbacks, but we may not have a choice with the internet. Right? They can get it on they can get it on anything. Put the Kindle app on it and get it on anything. Uh, I will have it on. Uh, I will have it in uh, on the Nook books here pretty soon. Um, in the process of doing that, uh, the one things I discovered. I bought an iPad just because I didn't know what the thing was. I wanted to see what it was, and I found out it's the biggest sales tool they ever invented because you can't do a thing on it unless you buy something. But, it, but at the same time, I read my books on the iPad now, and I will not read paperbacks anymore because. Uh, Reading paperback and a small print for an hour and a half, I start having eye strain and a headache. I can read my Kindle with the backlighting on, or my iPad with the backlighting all day long. I can make the font larger so I don't get eye strain. So, you know, I had to give in my paperbacks and go to the iPad. But Doug Summerfield, if you Google me, if you, if you just go to the Internet and Google me, Doug Summerfield, I usually pop up on the very first page. Awesome, and I'm going to put links up on the um, on the show notes, and uh, I'm actually going to put up your full spec too. Basically, all we just ran through there on all the features because I think that's a great reference. I'm going to try to get some time, Egan, and you have a section there where I can post pictures. I think that's right. You can you can log on to our website diyhomebuilder.org and create an account, and then we have a full community section. So you've got forums there which I'd love to get you involved in and, and get you answering some, some of my uh, some of my other community's uh, questions. Well, I'll try to get some pictures taken because I've done custom trim in this house, which looks pretty fantastic. And uh, I'll, I'll try to shoot a couple pictures of the view from the house and shoot a couple pictures of the house and maybe some of the features inside, like the custom trim and stuff like that and the size of the rooms and what they look like. I'll try to get that posted on your website too. That's awesome. Doug, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. And with that, we're going to sign off. Okie doke. Well, I appreciate you having me. And good luck to any of your viewers out there that think they want to build a home. We wish you luck. 
All right, owner builders. Well, that wraps up another great episode of the DIY Home Builder Podcast. Special shout out to Doug. I really appreciate him coming on and sharing his owner builder story with us. Hopefully you all found some great applicable advice there. And, uh, you know, this show went a little bit over our typical time length of an hour. I usually like to keep uh, the shows within an hour. And, and I'd like to get your feedback on that. So wherever you found us, whether it was on iTunes or Stitcher Radio or SoundCloud or on our website, DIYHomeBuilder.org, head back there and leave me a comment. Let me know what you think about the format, the time length, and the interview style that I've got going on. Um, also tell me you know, if you've got someone that you know who might be a great, uh, a great interviewee to come on the show, whether they're an owner builder or an industry professional, maybe a lender or a general contractor or a tradesman or woman, uh, let me know that. Send me, uh, go find us on our, on our website and um, shoot me an email through our contact form. Okay, and with that, we're gonna sign out. This is Egan Loman. Remember, keep swinging hammers and pounding nails. <laughs>